Welcome back to Russian Roulette, the podcast from the Russian Eurasia Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm your host, Jeff Mankoff. In this episode, I talk with Sarah Cameron, uh, Associate Professor of History at the University of Maryland and author of the recent book, The Hungry Step, Famine, Violence, and the Making of Soviet Kazakhstan, which examines uh, an extremely important and poorly known uh, episode in collectivization and the creation of the Soviet Union. It's a really interesting conversation. Uh, we hope you'll find it illuminating. Let's get started. I'm in the studio today with Sarah Cameron, uh, author of the new book, The Hungry Step, Famine, Violence, and the Making of Soviet Kazakhstan. Uh, Sarah, welcome to Russian Roulette. Thank you. So I think people who watch this part of the world, the former Soviet Union, are familiar to a certain degree with the Ukrainian famine of the 1930s. I think there's a lot less knowledge about the almost contemporary famine in, in Kazakhstan. So tell us a little bit about what happened, how this famine came about, what the consequences were, um, and sort of how it compared to the Ukrainian famine. Okay, great. Uh, thanks for that question. Um, Yes, most people are much more familiar with uh, the Ukrainian case for a variety of reasons. That's uh, particularly true in the West uh, because uh, there's a, a large Ukrainian diaspora in the U.S. There's um, a big memorial to it down by Union Station yes, here in, in Washington. Yeah, and uh, the, the U.S. Congress actually declared it a, a genocide in the 1980s. There was a congressional investigation into the Ukrainian famine. Uh, so for many reasons, the Ukrainian famine is much more uh, remembered in the U.S. Uh, the Kazakh famine uh, occurs actually... Uh, in roughly the same time period as the Ukrainian one. It was part of uh, Joseph Stalin's uh, collectivization drive, part of the first five-year plan. Uh, so they begin to collectivize uh, the Kazakh countryside in um, late uh, 19, you know, the winter of 1929 to 1930. Uh, and uh, they are shunting Kazakhs who were nomads at the time, mm -hmm. pastoral nomads, uh, they carry out, you know, seasonal migrations with their animal herds um, into uh, collective farms. Uh, and this uh, collectivization drive is ultimately very, very brutal in Kazakhstan. Uh, so famine begins in the winter of 1930 to 31. Uh, this is in contrast uh, to the Ukrainian case where famine does not, widespread famine does not begin until the winter of 1931. So it begins mm -hmm. a year earlier in Kazakhstan. Uh, the collectivization and, was happening at the same time? Yes, yes. But uh, in Kazakhstan, famine begins earlier. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, and so uh, then famine continues until it's finally uh, brought to a halt uh, really in, in late uh, 1933. So um, ultimately about one and a half uh, million people perish uh, in Kazakhstan. That way, Kazakhstan is a multi-ethnic society at, that, at this time, uh, but the famine deaths fall very heavily on uh, ethnic Kazakhs. Uh, the nomads, in other words. Yes, on the, on the nomads. So something like a, a third of all uh, Kazakhs uh, perish in this famine. And that's uh, actually the highest death rate of any people in, mm. in the Soviet Union. And how much – this is a one of the very touchy questions when it comes to talking about the Ukrainian famine. How much knowledge did the Soviet government, did Stalin have of what was going on in Kazakhstan? What's your sense of how deliberate uh, the, the famine was? Yeah, it's always a very difficult and tendentious uh, question. Well, 
To back up here, I think I should um, also mention um, that there is a longer history uh, to this to this project, particularly um, or to this idea of um, settling the Kazakh nomads. So collectivization was in part a project of of settling them, which begins under um, the the Russian Empire and efforts to make this into an agrarian region. A lot of those efforts uh, result in disaster. <laughs> right. And these are things that parallel what's happening in other parts of the world around sure, the same time. Absolutely. Including um, in the United States. Yeah. So the, I'm, uh, certainly, you know, there are interesting parallels with the Native uh, American case. Um, so in any case, um, during the 1920s, the Soviets then have a very active debate about uh, what sort of lifestyle is best suited for the Kazakh steppe, whether um, the Kazakh nomad should be settled uh, or whether uh, you know, or, or, or whether they should continue to lead their nomadic way of life. And a lot of experts at this time um, resist the idea. Ex- by experts, I mean agronomists, mm-hmm. you know, who are studying the environment. They really resist the idea that the Kazakh nomads should be settled. They say, you know, one of them even says explicitly that this is going to turn the steppe into a howling and unpopulated desert. <laughs> uh but the Soviets push forward with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they push forward with it for a couple of reasons. Um, they see, uh, like many other states and empires in this period, they see nomadic life as inherently unproductive and backwards. So there are both cultural and economic imperatives at play. Um, and, you know, they uh, basically want a way of life that can produce reliable yields. And mm-hmm. nomadism, uh, for various reasons, is um, and in part because of the environment of the staff yeah. itself, is prone to fluctuations in animal numbers. So they push forward, uh, despite a lot of information that this is going to result in disaster. Then when uh, the uh, when famine starts, uh, Stalin does receive pretty, uh, you know, uh, early reports of, mm-hmm. of famine. So I've been able to trace it back uh, as early as the, the sort of winter of 1930 to 31. Moscow okay. is clearly aware uh, so that... They're getting reports from party officials, from, from people from the ground. From Filip Golish, um, Goloshokin, who is mm-hmm. the party secretary in Kazakhstan at the time. They're clearly aware of uh, uh, that Kazakhs are, are starving. Um you know, they don't really take steps, I would say, to pull things uh, back until late 1932 to sort of change uh, change the situation. So I don't see it as deliberate in the sense that this was targeted as at Kazakhs as an mm-hmm. ethnic group. Rather, they accepted that, you know... Um, the um, what they needed out of Kazakhstan, uh, particularly grain and meat. Uh, so a lot of meat was going from the Kazakh steppe to feed meat producer to feed um, uh, places like uh, you know Leningrad and Moscow. In fact, Kazakhstan becomes the major meat supplier uh-huh. to these cities during this period. Uh, you know they ex- from animals that are raised on collective farms. Uh, well, from essentially from rounding up Kazakhs herds. Mm-hmm. That's uh, that's what they're doing. Uh, so they certainly did receive a lot of information uh, that the Kazakhs uh, were starving. One comment I wanted to make is that uh, I, I think well, it's very tough to disentangle the question of intentionality and why mm-hmm. they pursued such destructive policies, particularly at, at certain points. I would say 
you know, it, it's not fair to say they anticipated the full dimensions of the famine. Right. Uh, because one uh, one striking aspect of the Kazakh famine, in, in contrast to the Ukrainian case, is that lots of Kazakhs uh, flee abroad. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, well, flee to over other Soviet republics and also to flee China. to Xinjiang. Yeah. And this is, in many respects, very much counter to their own interests, as is a very precipitous drop in livestock levels mm-hmm. uh, that happens during the famine. Um, but one way that to try to to help understand why it is that they don't pull back is that there are a lot of stereotypes about nomadic life that keep floating around, even amongst uh, higher level party officials. So particularly the idea that um, nomads had an abundance of animals. You find this stereotype repeated Mm -hmm. again and again and again uh, about uh, about nomad, the nomads in Kazakhstan. and no, they're star- they're not starving because they have this abundance of animals. So this is in part how they sort of rationalize right. uh, these uh, these ongoing uh, requisitions. So when the decision was made to pull back and the famine ended in 1932, mm-hmm. can you talk a little bit about how that decision was made? Was it based on sort of a recognition that the push for collectivization was failing, or were there other factors at play? In part, it coincides with new leadership. Mm-hmm. So Goloshokin, who's Kazakhstan's uh, party secretary, uh, is ousted in late 1932. They bring in a new uh, party secretary, Levan uh, Mirzayan, who's uh, uh, an Armenian guy. He's going to say also not from Kazakhstan. Yeah, yeah. So th- both of the le- leading party secretaries are not, you know, uh, Filip Goloshokin, Levan Mirzayan are not. Kazakh, that was pretty common at the time that you didn't, the party secretary who was in charge was not uh, of the titular nationality, but usually his deputy was Uh of the titular nationality. Uh, And so it's really, I would say that um, Mirzayan is given much greater flexibility to operate uh, than than Goloshokin. He still does some pretty, pretty awful stuff, uh, but he seems to have much greater sort of flexibility to operate. Then I, I think Golshokin was under different constraints. Mm-hmm. I have never discovered a a document that says, let's pull back, right? Uh, mm-hmm. um, I would be really interested to, to find that. There's a couple things at play. I think they have some good luck. They uh-huh. get some pretty good weather. The weather's better. Uh, I think they also begin, they actually begin uh, to increase their purchases of animals from abroad. So there's mm-hmm. a, a great irony here that Kazakhstan is the Soviet Union's major livestock base, but they actually end up during uh, the end of the famine, they end up um, relying heavily on purchases of livestock from from Xinjiang across the border to increase Kazakhstan's uh, livestock herds. Mm-hmm. Which presumably is less cost effective than yeah. raising them domestically. And then the other thing they do, uh, I think that helps in resolving the famine is as I mentioned, many of the famine's major causes uh, or major aspects were unanticipated. So they, they certainly, I think, when they set forward with collectivization in Kazakhstan, they anticipated loss of life for all yeah. of the, the reasons that I've indicated, this longer history of the Russian Empire's uh, engagement with the steppe region, these warnings of experts and so on. Uh, but they did not anticipate all dimensions of uh, the famine. And one of the things that happens, as I mentioned, are this enormous refugee movement, both abroad and uh, within Kazakhstan. Mm-hmm. Uh and in part, the management of those refugees becomes a huge problem for them because in famines, people don't 
always die of starvation, they, desire, they die of disease. Uh -huh. And so when these starving people come into contact with each other or when they come into cities, uh, it just becomes breeding grounds. Right, they bring for, typhus and yeah. cholera. So they start like a, uh, a vaccination program uh, towards the end of the famine. And I think they become more focused on trying to halt the spread of disease. So I think all of those factors um, together help explain why it is that the famine came to yeah. an end. So we've already talked about the numbers. In just a couple of years, something like a third of the native population mm -hmm. died. Yeah. And that, of course, has an enormous impact that's going to be felt over generations. In addition to that, I mean, how did the, the famine change Kazakhstan? Prior to the famine, uh, Kazakhs had many different sources of their identity. Uh, you know, uh, a key source of their identity was being a pastoral nomad. Uh, in addition to that, another key source of their identity was their allegiances to different clans. Clans are an important mm -hmm. feature of pastoral nomadic life, allegiances to Islam and so on. But in the aftermath of the famine, uh, it is really national identity that becomes mm -hmm. the most um, it's the most important source. Uh, it, it makes Kazakhs, in, in essence, uh, into a national group, and it creates the category Kazakh as the most important uh, mm -hmm. source of their uh, identity. And was this the result of deliberate policy, or is this... In my book, I argue uh, that I see the Soviets' project of nation-building mm -hmm. as... Um, really key to understanding this disaster that uh, that it in fact shaped um, a, a lot of the the programs and the ways that they were uh, mm -hmm. the ways that they were designed that uh, this was not only a war on an economic category but it was a war to kind of create the category Kazakh basically to eliminate backward vestiges of mm -hmm. uh, of Kazakh life so to get people to think about themselves as Kazakhs rather than nomads exactly exactly yeah and then I mean I argue though they were only partially successful in that mm -hmm. goal um, they did get Kazakhs to abandon the economic practice of nomadism. But nomad, I don't think it's correct to say that nomadism disappeared or mm. it was eliminated. Because if you look closely, there are cultural aspects of nomadism that were retained. Okay. For instance, Kazakhs' reliances a clan um, prior to the famine was both an economic and it was a social tie. Mm -hmm. Well, the economic functions of of clans as part of nomadism that disappears, but uh, they still retain a lot of their of their social functions. For instance, even if we look to the 1940s and 1950s after the famine in Kazakhstan, you can find that Kazakhs even are organized into collective farms by clan or by sub-clan. And they still practice rules of um, exogamy by that, you know, you can't yeah. marry, you know, someone within who's within seven generations, yeah. these sorts of things, um, by, you know, asking people, oh, what clan are you? These sorts of things. Mm -hmm. And is that still true today? On this, there's been a lot of research on on clans in, uh, in Kazakhstan and contemporary Central Asia more broadly. Yes, I would argue that they're still, of course, still important to, to Kazakh life. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, nomadism, I would argue more broadly, has been fashioned in Kazakhstan today as kind of a usable past, yeah. right? The, the Nazarbayev regime is very interested in promoting all of these symbols of Kazakhs' engagement with, mm -hmm. you know, these 
civilized nomadic societies right. and so yeah, on. Businessmen from Almaty going and spending the weekend camping in a yurt somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that yeah. was a thing I remember from when I was in Kazakhstan. Yeah. Um, just to, to follow up and add on one more point. Uh, so obviously nomadism as economic practices is eliminated, but the famine does play the role of integrating Kazakhs into the institutions of, uh, of the party state. I mean, World War II, mm-hmm. which comes... You know, later would, of course, further integrate uh, Kazakhs, but I think we need to assign the famine a really, really crucial role. In, How in does that work? I mean, in, in, in what sense? So it's really interesting. Uh, you know, for instance, if you look closely at the memoirs from, from this period about the Kazakh famine written by Kazakhs, of which, unfortunately, there are very, very few, and this is a problem in researching the famine that most of the sources are produced by outsiders, and, and many of the sources are party state sources. Because and, literacy was comparatively low. Yeah, much. So if, if you compare it with a Ukrainian case, literacy is much lower. Uh, and then, you know, as anyone who studies nomadic societies knows, those sources which are produced by outsiders, produced by settled societies, they have particular biases sure. inherent within sure. them, which, you know, you have to be mindful of when you're you're reading them. But in any case, there are a few uh, memoirs of the famine, and a lot of them really detail in very interesting fashion how these people who were who were essentially nomads before, who migrated across borders, uh, joined the Komsomol after the famine, or entered into a collective farm, or mm-hmm. you know began to work for the Soviet state. So you can sort of trace this this pattern yeah. in the aftermath of the famine. And another interesting thing about the the book is you talk about environmental history and the environmental impacts of the famine. So could you maybe discuss that a little bit? Yeah, I think environmental history in the the Russian-Soviet field has been a relatively little explored, although that's changing fast. There's a number of, you know, really interesting books that have just come out. Uh, And so uh, when I looked at this topic, I really felt that the environmental lens was really actually quite important here because Uh, In the Kazakh case, the Soviets are confronting a territory which is markedly different from Western Europe. There are real environmental challenges. So, you know, arid soils, uh, very variable uh, rainfall and so on. Uh, And so I really go into detail explaining how this is a very, very difficult region, um, even up until this day, to carry out settled agriculture. So Kazakhstan now is a major wheat producer, but even now they're... (laughs) It's a very difficult region to produce wheat in, in, mm-hmm. in part because the weather itself is so variable in terms of rainfall. So I explained that the, actually the, the environment was uh, a big question mark for the Soviets. This was something that they spent a lot of time uh, looking at during the 20s. You know, how really could you, you make this into an agrarian region? Uh, and as I said, they get many warnings from experts mm-hmm. to say, don't do yeah, it. It's not a good idea. And, uh, you know, eventually uh, they uh, they do go forward. So in the past, when people have looked at the environment or the weather, uh, in in the case of, collect- of the collectivization famines, they have said things like, Either this was the party policy or it was the weather, right? And I don't think those sorts of explanations make sense Mm -hmm. because the weather here is not some sort of exogenous factor. It's something that the party was well informed about. They knew 
that uh, in, mm. they were warned clearly that a drought was going to happen. It actually does in the midst of the famine, uh, and this worsens the effects of the policy of the policies that they are had already put into play. Right, you're you're going to have droughts in this part of the yeah. world, and yeah. if you have an agricultural policy that doesn't take that into consideration, right, you shouldn't be surprised when yeah. things don't work out well. Let's talk a little bit about how the famine is perceived in Kazakhstan today. Um, as we were talking about at the beginning, it's not all that well known, uh, at least in the West, and maybe not in, in Russia either. How is it remembered, talked about uh, among Kazakhs? Yeah, it's a really interesting question and I hope uh, at some point there will be a full study of this question too mm -hmm. because it deserves a full book in its in its own right. I, I treat uh, the question in my book in an epilogue and I, I also treat it in the beginning because it's also entangled in the way that the literature itself has been produced. It's shaped uh, the secondary literature. So uh, in Kazakhstan, much like in Ukraine, uh, the famine was really not talked about during the Soviet period. In Kazakhstan, you see people weaving it occasionally into Kazakh language mm -hmm. materials, into novel short stories, because these things, I think, could evade you know, the eyes of uh, mm -hmm. the censors. But it's not really until the 1980s and 1990s that the story of the famine begins to be, quote unquote, discovered. <laughs> Uh, and at that point... Even though almost everybody has a family member exactly, who suffers yeah, from it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's when it really begins to dominate popular and scholarly uh, media in, in Kazakhstan. Uh, in Kazakhstan, the new president and the president still to this day is Nazarbayev, who is a holdover from the Soviet period. And initially, there is an outpouring of interest into this. Most of them, however, interestingly enough, they somewhat repeat the Soviet explanation for the famine. So the Soviets didn't talk about a famine, right. but they did talk about a grain shortfall. And, and problems more generally and distortions. And uh, they blamed that on Goloshokan mm. uh, at the time. Kazakhs initially, uh, some, resurrect this argument uh, and they refer to the famine as Goloshokan's genocide. Uh, Goloshokan, I should say, is Jewish. And so some of these explanations take on a kind of nasty anti-Semitic right. uh, tone. There are some more uh, sophisticated interpretations uh, emerging. So some you know, really scholars doing really, really interesting work uh, in the archives. But uh, it's my impression by the late 1990s uh, that this topic begins to be abandoned. Hmm. When I was, um, you know, doing my dissertation work uh, in the 2000s, I, you know, talked to uh, various Kazakh scholars and they would say, well, it's good you're working on, on that topic, but we've sold it all and uh, <laughs> moved on to other things. Or, or people would bluntly tell me that, look, we have been told that that is not a good topic to mm. work on. By the Kazakh government. Yes. And, and you know, it's made clear to us that if you write a dissertation on that, you publish a book on that, you're going to have a hard time, you know, getting it approved or getting it published. So, uh, and you can actually even, uh, when I was doing my dissertation work in the 2000s, you could even see this visibly. And I'll give you one example of that, which is I would go and talk to Kazakh historians and I would say, I've heard there's a famine memorial. Can you tell me where it is? And first, uh, this is in Almaty, uh, where the archives are. And they sort of scratched their heads, and none of them could actually tell me where it was, which I was pretty struck by. Mm -hmm. they, this is the historians working yeah, on the right. famine. They couldn't tell me where it was. So I walked all around Almaty, and I finally found it. <laughs> and this memorial was just a simple placard. It was kind of overgrown with weeds, and it said, 
It was built in, uh, you know, right around 1991, 1992. And it said, in this place, a memorial to the famine victims will be built. And it just Uh stood there, right? (laughs) So nothing to me more clearly conveyed the the fact that this topic had – that the emphasis had shifted and the politics had shifted. That's Uh, really striking because, again, in contrast to the Ukrainian case where memory of the famine has been really kind of mobilized as a a nation-building tool, um, that this hasn't happened in Kazakhstan. Well, so there's a postscript to the story, uh, which is in 2012, uh, Nazarbayev uh, suddenly decided that they were going to um, commemorate uh, the Kazakh famine, but in limited fashion. I would say that he very much took uh, some of the Russian government's line on the collectivization famines. The Russian government's uh, general line is that this was a tragedy of the Soviet mm-hmm. people. They don't talk right. much it about- It wasn't just about Kazakhs. It was yeah. about Ukrainians and Russians and everybody else. And they don't talk much about personal uh, responsibility or culpability more mm-hmm. more generally, right? Uh, this is a tragedy that needs to that that belongs to everyone essentially, uh, and so uh, Nazarbayev sort of took that line. He uh, organized. There was a big international conference organized, it, which I participated in. They built a memorial to the famine victims in Astana, and they finally completed the one in Almaty. But Nazarbayev was pretty careful, uh, mm-hmm. I would say, in his speech at the dedication of the famine. Uh, he said, we need to avoid politicizing mm. this issue. And I think that that clearly evokes uh, the Ukrainian case. And I've noticed since then that the work that has gone on has been sort of piecemeal in the sense that they've they've taken on kind of non-controversial things like they've published document collections, they've been collecting the names of the victims of the famine, but there's no, again, there's no real discussion of you know, who's responsible and how do we uh-huh. – uh, no real open discussion of, of how do we come to terms with this uh, as a society. Um, there are in some edges. So certainly I think you will find much more in the Kazakh language media that and among, uh, you know, uh, Kazakh speakers that there is a lot of unhappiness uh, with the Nazarbayev policy. And I think it was in part – I haven't been exactly able to figure out the mechanisms, but I think it was in part that – kind of public pressure specifically from some sectors of the of the Kazakh intelligentsia that pushed him to in 2012 to have this uh, to have this conference uh, mm-hmm. and to build the memorials to uh, to the to the famine victims but uh, you know this still has not led to led to a kind of full-fledged excavation of the issue in Kazakhstan yeah i mean do you have a sense of the government's or Nazarbayev's motivations for trying to prevent, as you put it, the politicization of the issue? Yeah. So I think a a couple things. So, uh, of course, you know, there's Kazakhstan's uh, close relationship with Russia that has to be Mm -hmm. front uh, and center. Uh, You know, I think there's uh, the issue of Kazakhstan's large Russian population. Uh, Kazakhstan still has a Russian, I mean, it's declined a lot since the Soviet collapse, but still has a Russian population of around uh, 20% uh, as you know, we talked about earlier, you had mentioned, you know, the fact that uh, Nazarbayev himself is a Soviet holdover, yes. right? There hasn't <laughs> been a regime change like uh, places like uh, uh, Ukraine. Um, and I think uh, more generally, there's a lot of ambivalence in Kazakhstan about what the Soviet past meant. Mm. Uh, this idea that, well, we were nomads before and that, you know, the Soviet, Soviet experience really made us into uh, a modern society. 
So a, a willingness to accept some parts of the Soviet yeah. legacy. Yeah. Hmm. Now, uh, this book hasn't been out that long, but you've been talking about it and you had a, an op-ed uh, related to it that you said was uh, translated and circulated in, in Russian and Kazakh. And I'm curious you know, what the reaction has been in Kazakhstan. Yeah, it was really, really interesting, I have to say. So I had an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal about uh, the book uh, sort of highlighting, you know, this is the 85th anniversary actually this year of both the Kazakh and the Ukrainian cases. And I use that as an opportunity to say, you know, why is it in the West that we really don't think about the Kazakh right. famine? Uh, and I think it has to do with all sorts of reasons like um, – the marginalization of, of mobile peoples from history, this idea that, you know, this was kind of like some sort of natural civilizing process and uh, and so on. And also our uh, the idea that we, we often think of Soviet history as part of European history, whereas the Soviet Union had this Asian half. Right. Or uh, Asian like seven-eighths. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and so I think we still have a lot more work to do in terms of integrating the history of the Soviet Union's Asian half into our understanding and our models of, yeah. of Soviet history. Uh, but to your to your question, it was really interesting to me. So uh, I I published this op-ed, and then it immediately got translated into to Kazakh and Russian. These are bootleg translations; they did not right. <laughs> acquire permission. Uh, and it got just republished all over the place throughout uh, Kazakhstan. And I have gotten this incredible reaction, just tons and tons of people writing me. Um, some Kazakhs are writing me because they think that I have influence in the U.S. Congress and can also <laughs> get the Kazakh famine <laughs> declared a genocide. I had to say that, unfortunately, I didn't, I didn't think that I could help much in that regard. Well, I mean, that's, you know, you publish an op-ed here and there, you get invited to testify at some point, you never yeah. know. So, uh, uh, I have been uh, contacted by filmmakers who are basically making trying to make films uh, about the Kazakh famine to testify to the fact that it was, you know, this horrendous episode who were looking for my help. I've had people writing me with the story, really moving stories mm. uh, about their family. And that's what's, I think, been the most, uh, been really, really striking to me is the degree to which, uh, you know, that op-ed uh, also uncovered the fact that Kazakhstan is in many senses a post-traumatic society, uh -huh. right? That people are still coming to terms with this. And so I've just been really moved by people who've come up, you know, even even a, a, the talk at the Wilson Center I came, I gave a couple weeks ago, people coming up to me and telling me these stories about their family. And mm -hmm. I, I think the op-ed had that um, resonance because in part, I was given a voice to speak about something that Kazakhs themselves are not given right. a voice to speak about, right? Uh, that, you know, it would be very difficult, I would say, for a Kazakh uh, to write and publish this sort of book in Kazakhstan because sure. to write a book, you need institutional support, you need money. Uh, and I was very fortunate to, you know, to get um, yeah. fellowship support, support from my institution to do that. And it would be very difficult because of the current Kazakh government's attitude toward, to that to to publish a book like mm -hmm. this. And so I think that's why you see, um, you know, such eagerness, uh, you know, to, to, to engage with the topic and, and curiosity. Yeah, which really suggests that despite the government's attitude of not wanting to really discuss this issue, there is this kind of 
subdued or folk memory that people have and that it doesn't seem to have an outlet for. Yeah. I, I think there's also, you can see even, and I trace it in the uh, the epilogue to my book, you can see uh, there's a lot of tension even. Uh, so I say also that the, the Kazakh Nazarbayev government only wants to talk about the famine within certain bounds. But even within their discourse, I think you can see tensions. So mm -hmm. tensions that play out to how the Kazakh government wants to style Kazakh identity more broadly. So uh, there's a tension between appealing to this kind of multi-ethnic yeah. uh, civic identity and this explicitly Kazakh national identity. Yeah. So, for instance, many of the people who are dedicating famine memorials will, you know, basically make statements like, oh, well, if this famine hadn't happened, you know, the the, the population of Kaz the ethnic population of Kazakhs today would be, right. you know, 30 million, these sorts of things. And so they, they are sort of appealing to this explicitly ethnic uh, vision of, of Kazakh Yeah, and, and I think when people talk about, quote-unquote, politicization of historical memory, like in the Ukrainian case, that's yeah. kind of what they have in yeah. mind, where Ukrainian political actors talk about the famine as a way of distinguishing Ukrainians from Russians and distinguishing Ukrainian history from Russian history in a way that suggests that, you know, Ukraine is a is a nation that has its own mm -hmm. past, mm -hmm. part of which includes being oppressed and colonized by Russia. Yeah. So what are some of the bigger lessons that we can learn from this? What does learning about the Kazakh famine tell us about the nature of Soviet power? Does it tell us anything about famines in other parts of the Soviet Union, like in Ukraine? What are kind of the, you know, some of the big picture lessons that we can take from this? Uh, I think the issue of the Kazakh uh, famine more generally uh, basically underscores the importance of Soviet nation building, even as it underscores the fact that it, it, it's destructive power, that it could also mm. be incredibly destructive. Uh, I... Uh, side with those who, who basically see uh, nationalities policy, uh, the Soviets' uh, program of trying to mold uh, the peoples of the Soviet Union into distinct nationalities right. as, as really incredibly important to the Soviet project and incredibly important to understanding uh, the fate of, you know, the, of the Soviet Union. Yeah, yeah. Ultimately. So, uh, and I, I basically try to point out, uh, you know, different instances uh, of how Soviet nationalities uh, policy was used and, and the importance uh, that it plays uh, in the famine uh, more generally. And uh, as I argue, it, it made um, uh, national identity the most important uh, marker of, of uh -huh. Kazakh identity. Um, in uh, Soviet moderniz in the realm of Soviet modernization, I try to show, uh, well, basically that the environment played a, a really important role in shaping uh, the nature of Soviet modernization. If we mm -hmm. are to understand Soviet modernization, we need to take environmental uh, factors into account. Soviet power was not monolithic uh, in this sense. Uh, and that really, if we want to include uh, you know, Asia into our understanding of the Soviet case, we need to sort of understand that the, the nature of the modernization uh, was quite different there, that the kind of leap, if you will, was more dramatic, that the distance mm -hmm. that they wanted to modernize, and then the results were much more catastrophic uh, right. in essence. Uh, and I think that makes us think differently about what it was that the Soviet Union achieved in the interwar period, right? There were real um, contours within it. The East did not look uh, the same uh, as the Soviet Union's West. I think it also makes us look differently at the issue of violence in the Soviet mm. case more broadly. Uh, often it's sort of 
you know, the the, the kind of stereotype uh, in our understanding of this period is that it's, you know, gulag prisoners who suffered the most. But we see them actually clearing Kazakhs off the land and building a gulag on Kazakhs pasture lands and then, you know, Basically, starving Kazakhs uh, trying to get into, you know, the gates of uh, of uh, of this gulag. And uh, I think generally when we think about uh, violence under Stalin in this period, it, the understanding is generally that the Soviet Union's West was the locus mm-hmm. of violence. This is where the techniques were developed. Right. Um, this was the, the, the real focus. And I think... Uh, Although the, most of the gulag camps were located, you know, in Siberia and the far north and far away from... From Moscow and Leningrad. Yeah, I'm. I guess I'm just thinking, for instance, of say, um, you know, Tim Snyder's book on the mm-hmm. Bloodlands, yeah. right? Which you know show shows or, or argues that the real focus was these this sort of interactions between yeah. Hitler and Stalin in this area. But I, I think the Kazakh case is a, is a really important uh, counterweight uh, to that. Um, in the Kazakh case, we see, for instance. Uh, that the Soviet East actually also generates important practices of, of social control and mm-hmm. that uh, practices travel uh, between East and West. And here I'm thinking explicitly of things like uh, border closures right. or uh, some of the techniques that were used against the starving, you know, or then later uh, de- deployed uh, in the Kazakh case. I think the, the Kazakh case has a lot to tell us uh, about the Ukrainian case. It's uh, difficult in some senses to compare them because mm-hmm. there's such an extreme information imbalance. We know so much more right. about the Ukrainian case than we do about the Kazakh case. And a lot of the literature on the Ukrainian case uh, has been shaped by a very particular lens, the issue mm. of ethnic targeting. Yeah. And for various reasons, the scholarship on the Kazakh case has not developed in the same way. Uh, so that's uh, one issue. But I think uh, in general, the Kazakh case shows us that the Ukrainian famine was not uniquely brutal. Right. That's a very uh, a claim that is often quite central to a lot of the literature on the Ukrainian famine, uh, that, that Ukrainians were uniquely uh, singled Targeted. out, whereas right. um, a lot of their instances of violence that was committed against Kazakhs during the famine that that doesn't even that doesn't have an equal in Ukraine. So, for instance, the shooting of thousands of Kazakhs on the Sino-Kazakh border, mm. or the fact that the Kazakhs underwent this really profound um, and very destructive cultural transformation—the you know, loss of their status as, as pastoral nomads—and yeah. uh, so, you know, in 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 thinking about that, um, that then invalidates some of the the arguments about the Ukrainian famine that it. Uh, some of them rest on the fact that the Ukrainian case was this uniquely brutal yeah, sort of right. uh, upswing. So on the issue of uh, the Kazakh famine and what it tells us about Ukraine, one key difference that uh, is important that we do have to bear in mind is that his Ukrainians, of course, had a historically troubled relationship with the U- regime, mm-hmm. whereas uh, the Kazakhs did not. With the Soviet regime. Uh, yeah, with the with the Soviet regime, uh, and the Kazakhs did not. In fact, I'm not really convinced that Stalin thought too much about the Kazakhs at all. There were these jokes going mm-hmm. around Moscow, or or actually Kazakh cadres made jokes that you know people in Moscow couldn't t- would confuse Kazakhs and Cossacks, you know Cossacks yeah, with a right. C, right? Or that they couldn't even comes lo- from the same word. Yeah, that they couldn't <laughs> they couldn't even locate Kazakhstan on a map. So I think. Uh, they didn't play the same role in terms of uh, 
the Central Committees, I think in part because Stalin was someone who was very focused on grain. Yeah. And of course, Ukraine was a major breadbasket. Uh, and uh, Kazakhstan was an important grain producer, but much less so than mm -hmm. Ukraine. Uh, and meat, Stalin did not focus on meat to the mm. same issue okay. uh, as he did on, uh, on grain. So it's true that there is this distinction that uh, Ukrainians had this historically troubled relationship with the regime and the Kazakhs did not. But if you look at the level of policy, I see there is absolutely no difference uh, in I don't see that making a difference in terms of how the Kazakhs and the Ukrainians were were treated. Uh, so we also see crackdowns, for instance, on Kazakh cadres over the course of the famine. Yeah. You know, uh, crackdowns on Alash Orda, this uh, native mm -hmm. political party. We also see in the Kazakh case, and this has been a major argument for uh, genocide in the Ukrainian case, uh, that uh, grain shortages, meat shortages, they are explicitly connected uh, with uh, Kazakh culture, as they as they are in Ukrainian culture, so uh, there are a lot of explanations you know, going around. Oh well, you know we're we're not able to get all of those animals because Kazakhs as nomads they're they're just hoarding all of these animals, uh, connected to these to these sorts of uh, stereotypes. So I think uh, what the Kazakh case does is that it should give us pause and make us think about some of these kind of axiomatic assumptions that we have made about the idea of, uh, you know, the idea that violence against a, a certain group was was targeted by uh, a particular ethnic understand ethnic right. attacks on that group. Mm -hmm. I, it's, it's something I should say that I think to fully really untangle the relationship between the Kazakh, it's my thinking more generally that one of the problems with scholarship on the collectivization famines is that it has dissolved into these kind of national camps. Competing national Right. And, and this was part of an all-union system, yes. right, where shortages in one part affect the other and so on. So uh, as I move into my, my next project, one side project I want to do is to read all of that vast literature <laughs> on the Ukrainian famine and really sit down and, and write an article, mm -hmm. a kind of side-by-side -side, uh, comparison of, uh, of these two cases. I'd like to integrate in information on famine elsewhere in the Soviet Union. There still isn't a whole lot on, yeah. on areas outside of, uh, you know, because, of course, the Volga region, uh, areas of the Russian countryside were mm -hmm. affected. Uh, so I think once I do that work, I, I hopefully can come up with a, an even better answer. Yeah, that may be more than an article. Yeah, 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 <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. Sarah, thanks again for joining us. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> Thank you again for joining us. That's it for our show today. Uh, you can find a link to Sarah's bio and to the book uh, in the show notes. For those of you who haven't already, you should subscribe to Russian Roulette on iTunes, where you can also leave us a rating and a review. And if you don't use iTunes, you can check us out and subscribe on Google Play or on SoundCloud. Enjoy and keep spreading the word. Let your friends know about Russian Roulette. Um, and, of course, keep sending us your mailbag questions. Uh, we're going to do a mailbag segment here soon. You can email them to us at rep at csis.org. Put the words Russian Roulette in the subject line. You should also follow us on Twitter. Uh, the program is at CSIS Russia. I'm at Dr. J. Mankoff, and Olya is at Olya Oliker. 
And of course, big thank you, as always, to everybody who works so hard to make the podcast happen every two weeks. That includes our research associate and program manager, Cyrus Newland, our intern, Kimberly Schuster, and the entire CSIS external relations and iLab team. Thanks for listening. Talk to you again in two weeks.